This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Lori Warren, the author of Wild World Joyful Heart, Unlock Your Power to Create Health and Joy. Our wild world is, in many ways, backward and upside down. We've created a culture that supports poor health, loneliness, stress, emotional angst, and polarity. But buckle your seatbelt. Lori Warren is a change agent, kicking our limiting, common but not normal cultural moors to the curb and working to shift both our personal and societal approach in favor of empowered well-being. Wild World Joyful Heart is both a rally cry and a guidebook for attaining the physical, emotional, and mental health that you deeply desire. Will you use your mind as a bridge or a barrier? This question is the thread that you'll follow through Lori's extensive research, clinical experience, and unique storytelling style to create better health and more joy in your everyday life. This book is an invitation to bravely inhabit your life in a whole new way, while your joy contentment, and wholeness reverberate out to stitch up our wounded world. Here are a few quick tips for health and joy in our wild world. Know that your actions, however small, matter. There's a lot of change going on, and many of us want to do our part. It can feel overwhelming. One small, consistent shift can create more change than a one-time event. Let's keep the momentum going without burning ourselves out. Feeling emotional? Feel the emotions and provide them with a release valve like crying, exercising, or being out in nature. As discussed in WWJH, Pent-up emotions wind their roots into your physical and mental well-being. Take a technology social media break. Daily technology fasts of one to two hours can be liberating, and many are amazed at how good they feel with their personal technology devices in a drawer for a few hours. The great news is, you can release FOMO fear of missing out because all the info will still be there. Overstimulation can create feelings of jumpiness and irritation. Breathe. Several times a day, stop and take three breaths. Breathing deeply as your belly and ribs expand fully. This invokes the relaxation response and gives your fight-or-flight system a much-needed break. Prioritize self-care. It's not selfish. It's imperative for the health of you and the health of society. Nourishing foods, movement, 7.5 plus hours of restful sleep, and drinking plenty of water, 80 to 120 ounces per day. Mindfully seeking out positive input for your psyche, like fun music, an upbeat podcast, or reading something that supports you in feeling positive, happy, and can do. Lori Warren, MSN, is a change agent for empowered well-being in body, mind, and spirit. She works as a corporate consultant, wellness clinician, sought-after speaker, and writer. 
and is the author of Wild World Joyful Heart. Unlock your power to create health and joy. Lori holds a master's degree in integrative nutrition with additional training in biochemistry, functional medicine, psychology, bioenergetics, and herbalism. Her approach to health, healing, and joy is grounded in three foundational beliefs. Number one, the body is a self-organizing organism that's hardwired for healing. Number two, our mind can be used as either a bridge or a barrier in our quest for well-being. Number three, what matters most is who we are as we move through this world. Lori is also a regularly featured expert in the media. A Maine native, she lives in the greater Boston area and enjoys her four children, her two grandchildren, and the gift of life. To read more about Lori and her work, please visit her website at lauriewarren.com. Here is the interview with Lori Warren. In your own words, who is Laurie Warren? Uh, well, Laurie Warren is kind of a multifaceted question, but my work is really about helping people find the fullest expression of their health in body, mind, spirit. That sounds wonderful. And it is a wonderful work that we'll be exploring today. But before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Wild World, Joyful Heart, Unlock Your Power to Create Health and Joy, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off-record. The first one is, what is another word for healing? Healing is balance and integrity within an organism. And that can be healing on the physical level, healing on mental, healing on emotional you know, any three of those levels. And in my way of thinking, you know, the totality of healing is is balance and integrity on all three of those levels. That sounds great to me. I'll be asking you more questions about that. What does it mean to you to be a human being? Mm. You got a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. We will need even more than that, right? Um, yeah. I mean, a human being, to me, a human being is uh, the opportunity to walk around in physical form on this beautiful planet that we're all on, hopefully moving towards more consciousness and hopefully doing things in our life to move humanity and all of sentient life forward in a positive way. Would you say that would be the same answer if I ask you what life is? Life in general to me is, I mean, everything is energy and light. So everything from my way of thinking is energy and light. Some of it manifested in physical form that we can see and touch like a human or a desk or an amoeba or a lizard. And then I think there's a great deal of man of life that is not in manifested physical form that we don't necessarily doesn't cross our radar on a daily basis, but it's all part of life. I think there's a lot, we think that all of life that we see and can touch with our, you know, hear, taste, touch, that's all of life. But I, and, and I would agree with that. And I would say there's a lot more there that we're not aware of. That's a wonderful experience, isn't it? You know, it's not really so much, a, it's just an awareness of what is. Like, I don't really think, like, I don't feel like it's, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's just being aware of all that is without necessarily narrowing it down to the physical things we can see. Staying with that, the follow-up question to that, what life is, is this one. What do you think is the opposite of life? Fear. What makes you think that way? You know, what's fun about this interview is that I have no idea what you're going to ask that makes it really fun. <laughs> and what makes right. it fun is that I don't, you know, what's coming out of me is just, yeah, fear. And now you're asking me why. And it's, I have to say, because life, not the little lives of our day when we're mad because we stubbed our toe or our car won't start, or we can't pay the rent, not that part of life, but life as a manifestation is beautiful. Right. And really when I say 
light. I'm talking love, love and light. I sort of lob into the same vessel. And those to me are expansive and life-giving and beautiful. And fear to me feels like a dark vortex that sucks the energy out of things. It makes people act in ways that is not our best human responses. So true. And it sort of feels like the opposite of love and light to me. So that's why I answered the question that way. It makes a lot of sense to me. I'm wondering what is uh, our biggest fear? Do you think we share like these uh, main fears? And what are they? What would be those fears? Oh, boy, that's a, again, you have seven hours. Um, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think one of, it's interesting. I think one of our biggest fears is feeling alone and isolated, separate. And that's all just something we created with our mind because we're just all, it's like the way people talk about them. Like they say, oh, well, us humans and then nature. And it's like, mm, mm, right. that's all one thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, the yeah. fact that we all get to walk around in these separate bodies doesn't really make the energetic expression of a human really separate. Like you and I aren't as separate as it would appear, yeah, given so. the fact that we have separate bodies to walk around in. Right. Right. Oh, wow. Um, so I think that feeling of separateness is really a root cause of a great, like a, when someone asks me a question like that, my mind tries to drill on on what the, the common thread is of all the things that run through my mind. Because there's many, you know, we can list lots of things people are afraid of. And so I feel like that that is one of the main ones is the feeling of feeling separate and alone. And if you look at a lot of mental health issues, they come from almost an, exast an, an, an exacerbation of that. I agree. Yeah. So that would be the main cause for all fears in a way, uh, feeling separate from life itself. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. From life itself, from other people, from abundance, from, you know, the separateness of those people have things and I don't, and that makes me feel separate. And then I have things and that person doesn't. So now I feel separate from them. Like all these, there's so many ways we make ourselves we make ourselves feel separate. I mean, what would you say, how can we work on ourselves to minimize uh, the manifestations of that core fear, the manifestations of that fear? I can still see my life almost every day, but I'm very aware of them. Of course, because we're living, you know, a human life. So we can't really kind of remove those fears. I don't like using the word get rid of. Yeah, yeah, no, but you and I know that both know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Words are hard sometimes, right? They seem so limiting. Yeah, yeah. I think that people spend a lot of energy trying to add things to reduce their fear. They add more money, they add more friendships, they add in things that I'm very fond of, like, you know, meditation and um, exercise and eating better and, and all this stuff, which is all good. And But I think that it's more of a of removing things that make us feel out of alignment and moving towards things that make us feel in alignment and by in alignment i mean feeling at peace and centered and so like i'll use personal examples for me watching mainstream news pulls me out of alignment because it's very fear based i mean that like it's just designed that way that's how it works and how they get great ratings and all that stuff. And it doesn't mean I'm out of touch, but I prefer to take in my news in the written form because it's less it's less jolting and I can just sort of pick and choose and get informed without watching the same violent image 16 times in 10 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's something that pulls me out of alignment, pulls me away from the real part of me. And then things that bring me closer to that are things like meditation or doing mindful activities or gardening or walking in the woods or being near the ocean. Those are all things that move me closer to what I feel is, you know, away from fear. And, and so I think it's a matter of knowing that 
most of our fears are culturally created and self-created and making intentional moves to set up our daily lives and our mind and our environment in a way that supports us being in touch with something a lot bigger than ourselves that is the truth of who we are. I love that. Because in the way is just being able to make beneficial or better choices, but not without pushing away anything. Not pushing away. And also I think, you know, we are human beings are social creatures in the same way that ants and termites are social. You know, if you take an ant out of the ant hill and go put it somewhere else, it'll die very quickly. Oh, wow. Even if it has food, because it needs to be with the other ants. And that's why, yeah, that's why, (laughs) that's why we use solitary confinement to punish people because it's torturous to be away from the fabric of, of humanity. And I think when one of the things that is sad is that when a lot of times when humans move into fear, they become unkind to other human beings. When feeling fear and seeking meaningful connection is actually, you know, to use your words, much more healing and much more bringing us to the truth of ourselves as opposed to you know, that's one of the things I think has been so unfortunate on social media, which has its great points. But people will say and do say very unkind things that they wouldn't say to a person in person. That makes sense. It's interesting how the mind works. Once we make the mind, it's very much into separation. I don't feel the mind. It's kind. Do you connect the mind, this idea of what the mind is to the soul, to the spirit? I do. Yep. You do? Yeah. And, but I feel like there's different, you know, there's all to say the word mind is like saying pencil mm-hmm. and just like, it's that, not that you're doing that, but people in general, they say, Oh, the mind. And first of all, a lot of people confuse the mind with the brain and they're two different things related, but different. And then it's like, Oh, the mind is this thing. Oh, well, where is it? And people say, Oh, well, it's in your head. It's like, no, that's the brain. <laughs> and that's like, Oh, well, I guess the mind's there too. But you know, most of the research shows that the mind is not just in the brain or even just in the body. And there's, you know, a lot of quantum research that shows that mind is really just more like this amorphous thing that we all sort of share and can tap into. And so I do feel like mind when used in a way, again, that is expressing the best part of ourselves is connected to something called spirit or soul or whatever you want to call it. And something bigger than that. But the mind that we use to send a mean social media communication or to paint our toenails or to like, that's a different, you know, that's a different, that's our mind brain being used. I tend to blob those together in a different way. And I feel like it's a different manifestation of mind. Again, that mind is not just like the word pencil. I think it's very multifaceted and there's different aspects of it that we can use and parts of it are very beautiful and important. And then parts of it can be used because it's related to a human being who has all kinds of baggage and difficult things in their past that have led to habits and belief systems that they, that they color everything with. Cause we all, you know, look through uh, an individual lens, all 7.6 billion of us look at the world very differently. And so that mind comes through that lens and uh, gets distorted in a different way. So in a way, Laurie, what are you saying is that the mind is actually uh, one thing, the consciousness, awareness, is just everything. It's one thing. It's the field of space itself, energetic field that we all have access to. But then it depends. The way we use it, it very much goes through the filter of our own perceptions our own perceptions our own you know personality our own way of being you know it just gets um and i don't and and i I don't necessarily use the word distorted in a bad way but it does get it's like you know when you stick a stick in the water and then it kind of bends and looks different and i think of that that way and and so um again i think that mind is a huge topic and i do think it's related to spirit and consciousness. And I think it would be really hard to 
parse out where one begins and where the other ends. What is freedom to you? What is to be free? Or what would that be? Hmm. I think freedom has much more to do with what we were just talking about, the mind. And just to take it out of my experience, I mean, there's been accounts of, you know, prisoners of war who felt free in prison because they really felt like no matter what anybody did to them or said to them, that they were still in charge of the way they were going to decide to think of their captors, think of the experience that they were living in that moment. And then you can look at people that seemingly have a, you know, beautiful, sunny life with, you know, every material thing you could want and a family and blah, blah, blah. And, and they feel trapped. So I think freedom has a, I think we're back to perspective and mind in the way that we view things. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? I think the world's greatest need is for more people to keep, continue the process of becoming more conscious so that we can, so that there's just more awareness of connection, aware that we're not separate, aware that we're all in this together, aware that, you know, someone down the street that's hungry actually is your problem. Like it is, it's in your experience. So I think that's one of the main things that we would focus on. And I don't, I'm not going to pretend I know how we would do that. <laughs> no, you are doing it already. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think that um, I'm very hesitant to talk about what like a perfect, and I'm not, you know, I don't think you're really asking this, but I have to say this. I think it, I would be hesitant to talk about what a perfect world would look like or what we should be striving for, because I don't think it's my business or my job to say that. I don't think any of us know what that really looks like. And I'm very clear that I'm one tiny, teeny, tiny little, you know, this larger energy we're talking about. I'm a teeny, tiny expression of that. So far be it for me to know what a perfect world will look like. And I, and I think you'd have a really hard time getting all 7.6 billion of us to agree on what that would look like, True. <laughs> given how different we all look through our little lens, right? But I do feel like one of the, you know, in addition to what I said earlier, having respect for the planet, I think is a huge, we're the only animal that damages our own environment. Oh, wow. Is that, it's a fact, Laurie? Yeah, no other animal. If you, I mean, deer don't run around figuring out how to kill the foliage that they eat. <laughs> True. <laughs> right? Okay. Like, you know, animals just live with the environment and, and take what they need and they don't take any more than that. And they don't hoard things and they don't, you know, it's just all of the other animals and, you know, we're an animal, all the other animals just live with the environment and we seem to be constantly trying to extract and shape and you know make things differently than they would be naturally and i think it's not just because we're ding-dongs i think you know that's not really the part of the reason is that is that there's a huge overpopulation problem you know i think we're trying to figure out how to support all those billions of people on this planet and i think we're really struggling. What is love to you, Mari? I think it's very hard to describe, but I think the closest thing that I think people could sort of associate with is the word compassion. I think they're very closely related. So the love that we tend to talk about, if you listen to almost every love song and songs, which I'm a huge lover of music, so this is no hit on music, but it's all about, you know, obsession and possession and and uh, making me happy. And, you know, it's not really about love. Love is, I think it's much closer to that, you know, as a mother of four kids, I think it's closer to that moment when a child is born and that thing you feel in that moment that is so instantaneous and so huge and so like, you know, overused word unconditional, but it really is unconditional. It's not, there's no conditions attached. I love you if, like love doesn't have the word if attached to it, definitionally for me, like from my way of thinking. 
Do you believe in unconditional self-love? I believe in unconditional self self acceptance, and I and I say I I don't know why I sort of veered off to the right there a little bit, but I think accepting ourselves and all of our you know as I call it in my book messy personhood, you know we are people we are messy and we all have our stuff and we're figuring things out and some days we're lovely creatures and the next day you know I'm in a bad mood and I snap at my kid and you know like it's just it's all part of being a human feeling separate. Self-acceptance is the word that I would use. And I do think it's possible, but I think it requires or, in, or, or asks or invites that we veer away from using outside expectations and roles and feedback on what it is to be our best selves. Because I think that each one of us was born knowing what that is and we very quickly forget and have it socialized out of us. If you watch the way a three-year-old acts and watch the way a 15-year-old acts and then watch the way a 40-year-old acts, there's almost like a, like a de-evolution there oh, where, wow. where the three-year-old is just full of life and full of, they're not self-conscious typically. You know, unless they had a really bad beginning. Hmm. Yeah, right, right. But typically that young person is has no doubt that they're amazing and powerful and a being of love. They don't question that and they express it fully. And it's not till later that we start to be told, you know, men, you know, boys don't cry and girls cross their legs and, you know, all these weird things that we layer on, I think we start to question and start to feel uh, not good things about ourselves. And that leads us away from self-acceptance and away from self-love. So I do believe it's possible to continue leaning toward it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great practice, isn't it? It's an empowering (laughs) practice. I'm just wondering if this is another conditioning that we have most of the time when I ask this question, I notice for mothers especially, it's really challenging for them to say that. Yeah, I unconditionally love myself <laughs> uh, even before my kids. <laughs> yeah, and I think, honestly, I think part of it, Valeria, is that I think the reason I sort of sidestep that word self-love is that I think for a lot of people what, happens is self-love becomes a self-centered thing. There's a, it's a very slippery slope. And I'm not saying that it, you know, is always that way, or I just, I think there, in the word self-acceptance to me, to me, acceptance is a form of love, right? It's not resisting. It's not, it's, well, it's just an is. And so I feel like as we, as human beings, hopefully um, continue to become more conscious and more accepting and less resisting of the fact that, you know, life is hard sometimes and we don't always get what we want and things don't always go our way and that maybe we don't even really know what our way is. And that so the word for me, acceptance, removes the possibility or probability that self-love becomes a like, oh my God, I'm so amazing. And that's not it. They were back to that sort of romantic love in the in the songs, but towards ourself. You see what I'm saying? And so really to me, in, in deep self-love, you actually sort of forget the self. Yeah, true. Yes. Right, because you're, you're so connected to something bigger than yourself, but that the self doesn't really matter so much anymore. It's, it's just an all-pervasive love. I think that's why I bristled it, not bristled, but you know what I mean? Like I kind of sidestepped that. Yeah, now I understand the reason now. Yeah, and that's true. Yeah, that could happen. So true. Do you ever use the word God? I don't. Okay, why? Because there's lots of people that that doesn't mean anything to. So in in my book, I call it O2. So it's an abbreviation, O-E-T-U, the organizing energy of the universe. And I pick in the book, I, and I know we're not talking about the book yet, but I think anytime we use, this is the difficulty with words. Words are good pointers, but they're 
as much as I'm a writer, I love words, right? But I also recognize, you know, it took me forever to write that book because words are limiting. When you're trying to express something, even now as you're asking me questions that I have, you know, very deep feelings and beliefs and knowings around, it's hard to express in words what you feel in the deepest part of yourself. So the word God, not that I think it's a bad word, for a lot of people, it's a great word because it points to the organizing energy of the universe. The word Allah, the word Jehovah, can all point to that. So in the book, and when I'm in a conversation, I tend to use, you know, lar- the, the largesse, um, the organizing energy universe, uh, something greater than ourselves, like something that hopefully more people can, t- can connect to that isn't about a particular book or a particular belief system or a particular story. Not that those stories are bad or wrong or aren't good pointers, but for the fact that we have in many ways used religion to become separate. Yes, right, unfortunately. And right. And so I think that's sad. Like the the to me, the one thing that would hopefully bring us together that we can all agree on that doesn't have to do with skin color or race or economic you know, situation or whether you're a parent or not, or whether you're this or that is, you know, a connection to something larger, which I think something like 90% of the world believes in, which is pretty astounding amount. But the second you start to use words that the other person doesn't resonate with, then, then it becomes separate. Well, I don't believe that. Well, my book says this and your book says that. And I think this person, you know, this being was here and is coming back and you believe they're not. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh yeah. So that is why I don't use the word God. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? If we call ourselves spiritual beings and we are doing the spiritual practices, but then if we create separations again and I meditate better than others and all that, or I know more than others, they seem to me to be the same coming from that perspective. But do you see from your own perspective a difference between spirituality and religion? Yeah, I think we're a little bit back to the idea that words are really good pointers and not necessarily always helpful. But without using that sort of, you know, it's a little bit lame to just leave it at that. So I think spirituality and religion in the ways that most of us humans use the words, I think they're related but the trick is i think you can be i think you can be very religious without necessarily being spiritual and to use like a really gross example i mean there's lots of people that you know apparently mafia that go to church so they're very religious right they go and they you know do all the things you do in church and but to me you know a lot of their activities and their work is not necessarily something that you would do as a spiritual person And I think that a lot of times people can turn spirituality into a a religion in the sense of where you start to use dogma as something that becomes defining as to whether someone is spiritual, whether they are religious or whether they are worthy. And I think that becomes limiting and starts to create separateness again. And to your point, what you just said, you know, I, I have been in those circles and there are very, very many spiritual circles that, um, you know, I've left retreat centers when I just felt like, oh, well, you know, that wasn't a good, you know, I don't feel like you had a good meditation. It's like, oh my God, how do you even know what I was doing? (laughs) Like, how do you have a bad meditation? Like meditation is sitting and quieting your mind. And for some people connecting to something larger than yourself, how do you do that badly? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. yeah. So I think anytime you have, and you know, and I'm including myself in all this, like I'm, you know, just as flawed and weird as everybody else. I, I think that what can happen is, is that we so much want to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Feel special and good and like we're doing it well and that we're, you know, so, so we take something that really is meant to be like, I don't maybe need to talk to anybody about my spirituality or what my practices are because it's my connection with something greater. 
So in a way, it doesn't have to be a conversation even. It doesn't have to be a conversation. And I think, and and so what, and oh God, I even kind of might regret this comes out of my mouth, but um, <laughs> I think it's a mistake when I think it's a good, like a starter kit, but I think it's a mistake when people decide that another being, be it a guru, a teacher with a capital T, you know, a minister, a priest, is there a connection to something greater? You don't need someone to be that for you. And it's, and, and I, I think it's a good, again, like a starter kit, like when you're, you know, when you first start to wake up and you're becoming more conscious and you need some direction and what does this mean? And you want somebody to talk to you, but the second you start to infuse another person with a gate that, that decides whether or not you're connected to the thing that you're already connected to. Yeah. You're already connected to. We're already connected to it. It creates, again, we're back to separation from your, almost from your own self. Oh, wow. I love your wisdom and I love how humble you are too. Yeah, that says a lot more than words, like you just mentioned in a beautiful way that spirituality, whatever, this greater self doesn't need an interpreter. It doesn't need a conversation even. Totally. And I think part of what's hard about that is that where we've learned, and this has increased over time, that we define ourselves as doers instead of beers. Mm-hmm. Right. So True. we're not as comfortable in being, but we're very interested in talking about how crazy busy our days are and all the things we're doing and oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming and la 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 la. And and that is a really good way to become disconnected to, to the part of yourself that actually matters. So let's talk about your work. We might have to schedule another 30 minutes, <laughs> but <laughs> because your book is so rich and I have so many notes here, but let me start from the beginning. How did you become a writer and what was the inspiration and intention of writing your book, Wild World, Joyful Heart? So I became a writer when I was very young. I've been you know, keeping journals since I was a teenager and I took a lot of writing in college until someone told me I couldn't make any money doing that. So then I picked a different path. You know, I have a blog now with my work. And the book came about because uh, one of the part of my work is working with corporate clients, helping to create wellness cultures and companies, you know, teaching people about body, mind, health. Um, I tend to leave this word spirit out when I'm working in the corporate world because people get enough squidgily about that. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so uh, the CEO of one of the companies, you know, said, when are you going to put all that stuff you have in that mind and put it in a book and make it more accessible to people? And I, it, it kind of, I thought about that off and on. And so I committed to somebody and that's what the, you know, for me, that's the big deal. Like not committed to somebody, but I'm going to do it. And I started to write a book and I literally wrote an entire half a book. And, um, just felt like it was the wrong book. And so I scrapped it. And my older sister was like, what do you mean it was the wrong book? How do you know it's the wrong book? And I'm like, I don't know. I just feel like it's not the book I'm supposed to be writing right now. And so I started over and wrote this book, uh, Wild World Joyful Heart, which interestingly got published in October, right before first the coronavirus hit. And then this cultural, very necessary cultural uprising happened. I mean, our world hasn't been this wild for a long time. So it's kind of weird that I, that was, so I, there was just a book that I felt needed to come out of me. And it wasn't the book. I think this gentleman that wanted me to write a book, he had an idea that it would be a book that would be good for my business, like maybe a corporate wellness book or something like that. And it just wasn't the book that wanted to come out of me. So this book, I mean, there's still, I don't know, it, it just felt like the book that needed to come out of me. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting that the title is Wild World. I call it interesting. That is interesting. (laughs) What is joy to you, Laurie? Do you connect that to the word happiness or it's somehow different? So again, you know, words are tricky, right? Words, (laughs) yeah. But I, for me, this is just the way I think about it, which is happiness to me is conditional. And joy is not conditional. So 
happy is, you know, if you and I were sitting in a room together and all of a sudden you said, hey, you want some chocolate ice cream? Be like, yeah, I'll have some chocolate ice cream. And then I'd be happy. And then maybe you come back from your kitchen and say, oh gosh, sorry, I don't have any ice cream. And then I wouldn't be happy anymore. And I'd be sad, right? So that to me, happiness is, it's not a bad thing. It's just conditional and transitory. So it comes and it goes. Joy to me, when I'm out walking in nature and listening to the birds sing and watching the sun come through the trees and thinking about the connection of everything, I feel incredibly joyful. And I feel like almost nothing could dampen that. It's just, a, it's, it, it, it's a different, it, it's not, and you could say, well, that's conditional. You're walking in the woods. I'm like, yeah, but I'm in a place where I'm not focusing on things or experiences necessarily, but more who the beingness of me is and what I'm a great, what I'm part of. And so I feel like joy is something that comes from a very deep part of us and lives in the same area as words like love and compassion and empathy and those kinds of words, whereas happiness to me is more like, I'm happy, oh, now I'm angry, now I'm, you know, resentful, now I'm, you know, it's a different kind of word. I have to agree with you, I think the same way. Another word is that you use in your book is heart. Do you connect that to to the soul, to the spirit? <laughs> heart says, boy, you're a good interviewer. You ask great questions. Heart has so many levels. This is another one like, oh, you have seven hours. Um, so there's the heart, the physical heart. And then there's, you know, the heart chakra, like the energy area of the heart. And then there's heart, which we tend to connect with love. And I don't know if you've ever experienced like a heart breaking situation, but you really do feel it in that area, which is interesting. I don't think we know the first thing about the human heart other than it's a sort of ugly blobby looking organ that pumps blood around our body. I think we're pretty clear on that, but I think there's a lot of other levels of the heart that we don't, we haven't even begun to understand partially because we're very fascinated with things that we can take apart and slice and dice and less interested in things that are very difficult and multi-layered to understand and that maybe we can't see. So I think there, I think, you know, if you flash forward, if we're still around in another thousand years, I think there'll be very different and hopefully we evolve, you know, from a level of, in levels of consciousness, I think the, the discussion about heart would be a very different one. So your approach to health, healing and joy is grounded in three foundational beliefs. The body is a self-organizing organism that is hardwired for healing. Talk to me about that, Laurie. The human body, I feel, is uh, designed for what I call a homeodynamic state. I don't use the word homeostasis because stasis means still and non-moving. And the body is dynamic. It changes every second. My, the, my biochemistry when we started this call is different than it is now. And so what we will hopefully increasingly learn to do is, is treat the human body as, first of all, it's the only thing we have to ride around in while we're here. So it's a good idea to take good care of it. And to always be asking the question, when things do go amok in the body, why is the body doing that? Not how can I stop it or how can I, you know, wrangle it to fix but how, why is it doing that? And where are the imbalances that need support in order to correct themselves? That's a key word. And I think um, for all of the many amazing things that modern medicine has brought to us, one of the non-amazing things that's brought to us is the idea that we are master over this body, that we can, you know, cut apart and do things to and take things out of and sort of disvalue. So that's what I mean when I say that it's self-organizing. It does self-organize if it is supported in the way it needs to be. It's like, 
Think of a child. You know, if you support a child in the way they need to be supported, there's a good chance they'll grow up, you know, relatively stable, emotionally balanced. Not always, because we all have our own journey here and different things we need to work through. But the point is, is that there's a lot of things that are self-organizing and the body is, I believe, one of them. It's just an amazing, rich book. So we can find pretty much all the answers there by reading the book. But I'll ask you, trying to summarize, what would you say are the most important ways to take care of the body? So here's what's interesting, is that I think probably one of the most important things you can do for your body is to tend your mind. Mm, Wow. And the mind is profoundly powerful in the physical expression of our body. And this is someone who, you know, my graduate degree is in integrative nutrition. And I've trained in functional medicine and neuroscience and, you know, all of these things that are very more physical. And yes, sleep is hugely important. And food is, you know, we build 300 million new cells a minute in our body. It's astounding. What an opportunity to build them with broccoli instead of ringdings, right? (laughs) Not all the time, but most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Um. So I'm a huge believer in food and movement and restful sleep, at least seven and a half hours a night. But I think we get so focused on, oh, I have a physical body and these are the physical things I do to support the physical body, which is important. But if someone is living in deep trauma or stressed out all the time or constantly looking through a a mind perspective that they are not worthy of existing on this planet, you will see those effects in the body. And no matter what, and I've uncovered this in my own practice, like doing all the quote unquote right things physically and the, and the body not being supported in healing because the mind was not on board with balance and integrity. And this is your second foundational belief So you say our mind can be used as either a bridge or a barrier in our quest for well-being. Exactly. On on every level, like the mind, in every moment, we're using it as a bridge or a barrier. You know, if I have a conversation with somebody and they trigger, you know, I allow something to be triggered to me and then I walk away all angry and I'm now, I'm going to view everything angrily. The person that walked in front of my car on the crosswalk, you know, the person saying something on the radio I don't agree with, you know, my mind, all those people are just being, my mind has become the barrier to me being joyful and in alignment. So, or I can use it in a positive way. And the truth is, is to connect to the greater part of ourselves, the mind in a lot of ways just needs to get out of the way altogether in the state of beingness, of just being. That leads to the foundation belief three. What matters most is who we are as we move through this world. So this is what you mean too when you say just living more as the being, which I call the spirit. How do we know when we are living from that space? I imagine that that answer might feel different for different people. But I think that You know, in my book, I talk about it as a dimmer switch and that we all have the same light and energy and beauty running through us. It's just how much we have our dimmer switch turned up. And it's not a judgment or a good or bad. It's just an is. And someone that, you know, runs out and stabs somebody, you know, their dimmer switch in that moment is, you know, probably on a lower setting. And someone that, you know, puts their own life in danger to go help someone who's in a very bad place is operating from a higher dimmer switch. I think they're allowing more of the the bigger part of themselves to flow through them. And I think when we're in that state, it's a feeling that just feels uh, peaceful and aligned and uh, more non-judging both of ourselves and experiences and others. And in a way, one becomes really not very fearful 
because there's really nothing to fear. It's when, again, words just really hard in this, the spirit chapter was a really hard one for me to write because it's hard to write about it, especially in a way that a multitude of people can receive it without bumping up against their particular belief systems. Uh, you start the book with some myths. I'm going to focus on the one that I would like you to talk to me more about it. As a myth, you say, we are helpless victims. I'll move to the part one. So you have some steps here, the personal responsibility pillar on it, and then you have step one, two, three, and four. Talk to me about them. Yeah, so for me, personal responsibility is, it's very easy to, feels comfortable in the moment to blame things that aren't going well in our lives on the people and experiences around us. Unfortunately, that makes us feel like a victim, which doesn't feel good to anybody, but it's the easiest way out in the moment. Well, I said that crappy thing because you were being a jerk to me, right? Whereas if we can acknowledge in any moment, sort of the step one, acknowledge that in anything that's going on, we're playing a part, including how we respond to it in our mind um, and then how we you know, outwardly respond to another person or an experience or a group of people. And part of this is realizing that almost nothing is personal. Yet, if you speak to most people, they feel like everything is personal, right? And so that's a big disconnect. Because life is just happening and other people are just doing things. And what, what would make me very happy would maybe make someone else very angry, right? So, so acknowledging that things aren't personal and that we have, um, if we're going to blame others, we also then need to blame ourselves, which is just a whole lot of yucky blame. So it's better just to not blame at all. Right. So that's step one. And step two is to um, what I call focus and identify your circle of influence. So we have a whole lot of things we worry about. And I borrowed this from uh, the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. There's a whole lot of things that are in our circle of concern. Lots of things. Our circle of influence is a tiny little circle in the middle of that big circle. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know, I'm worried about the economy and I think about, you know, equal rights and I think about um, the virus and how it's affecting everything, not necessarily because of the virus, because of the way the humans are responding to it. Um, you know, I think about, you know, my kids and what they're involved in and is it good things. And there's so many things that I could sit here and we, I go on for hours about things that I think about that are in my circle of concern, but my circle of influence is actually very small. And so the best thing we can do is focus on our circle of influence because it's really silly, not silly in a judgmental way, but silly in a personal happiness and joy way to focus and spend a lot of agita on things that we don't have a lot of control over. doesn't mean we don't try and influence them. You know, like I, all the marches of the last weeks, I participated in those. I don't, that's my way of influencing. I can't, change overnight the way everybody thinks about race. But I I can have some influence a little bit in my teeny tiny little way, right? So that's, that's, you know, identifying your circle of influence. And then, you know, the step three in that chapter is unlocking your potential as a creator. And I, I do deeply believe that we're all very powerful creators. And, um, I think that we can use our influence in very positive ways to shift our own life experience to one that feels better to us and to shift our collective life experience in a way that feels better to all of us. Um, And then my step four is owning it and avoid having a big butt. And that's a (laughs) intentional plan words because I like to be silly. Um, and, And that I mean, you know, well, I'm, I didn't really mean to do that, but X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. 
the next one, self-worth, I would love to talk to you about it. Perhaps we need to schedule another time, which will be <laughs> wonderful <do> too. <laughs> but for now, I have three questions to ask you, my final questions. So before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Um, actually, I'm really enjoying your questions and I would urge anyone that's listening to read the book because I do feel, obviously, because I wrote it for a reason. I think there's a lot people can find. I actually intentionally wrote it in sections so that people can take it in. And by it, like you said, you used a very kind word, which was, um, I don't know what your word was, but it's rich. dense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is rich. dense. <laughs> it's dense, right? So, you know, taking it in bite-sized chunks and then deciding what resonates with you. Because maybe I wrote something that doesn't rate with you and that's, that's totally cool. So find what does and run with that. Um, and that's really, you know, and anybody's listening, what I would want to say and everything else, I am actually really enjoying your questions. Yeah, I'm enjoying your answers and your wisdom. Yeah, it is a wonderful book, though. I have to go back to it. <laughs> I did focus on things I'm interested in at this time, in this moment. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself as a human being as of today? You know, it's interesting. I think the hardest lesson was also the most powerful. It's one of those, you know, that two-sided coin thing, um, which is that I'm just very, very tiny. And yet I'm also a powerful creator. So the lesson, you know, I think so many of us are striving so hard to do something big and important and be something. We're not even really sure what that means, but we just want to, and it's, and it's a lot of it's a self-worth thing of wanting to, and it's us as, you know, individual separated people wanting to make our mark. And that's part of why we fear death so much. People that are comfortable with life and with who they are actually typically don't really fear death. And, um, and so although that was a really hard lesson, learn, you know, really coming to understand sort of the inconsequentiality of me with a small M was also a very empowering one and brought a lot of sort of more calmness and peace into my experience of this life I'm living right now. If you knew you would lose the body soon, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? No, I can't say that I would. If you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have said yes. But right now, I don't think I would do anything differently. I'm very satisfied with my relationships and I do work that is meaningful to me. And I eat food every day and have a warm roof over my head and get to walk in the woods and feel good. Yeah, that sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> I keep using that word because it is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it is wonderful. <laughs> Um, so my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? I don't know if I can think of three, but I can, I think, and I, oh gosh. So asking me what I know for sure sounds like the word, sounds like what are truths. And I just always get a little shy around that because it feels sort of like I'm being big and sassy. <laughs> um, and talking about things that maybe aren't my business to talk about. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, I guess the one thing I would say is that I, I feel strongly that we are beings of light and love and that I feel very strongly about, and I, and I see it every day in interactions with all different kinds of people. And I see how that can get dimmed, particularly when people are in fear. So those are the, I guess that is not really the exact answer. You might have been the three things, but that's the only thing I would really feel comfortable saying. So. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your beautiful presence. I mean, everything that you've been expressing here with words, I know they're limiting, really felt true to me. Yeah, so thank you for that, for being that force. We need, we need more of this in, in this reality. <laughs> so thank you so much, Laurie, for your presence, for your genuine presence. Yeah, and thank you for the work you do, Valeria, and for the great questions and the opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? 
Um, so lauriewarren.com, that's L-A-U-R-I-E-W-A-R-R-E-N um, is my website. Uh, and on that, you can link to, I have a YouTube channel and I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, that's where I can be found. Thank you so much again. And we'll talk soon. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lori Warren, please visit her website, lauriewarren.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.